Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Please be aware that today's episode of Tuesday Breakfast will contain descriptions of rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, drug use, descriptions of drug paraphernalia, mental illness and mental health, suicide and self-harm that may be distressing to some listeners. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please switch the channel. Or you can call Lifeline on 131 114 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia on 1-800-211-028. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren, and me, Anya. We've got a special program for you today. So, first, a bit of context. Um, a few weeks ago, Lauren, Ayan, and I got into a bit of a Twitter spat. Um, it was regarding a panel organized by a prominent event venue about the Me Too movement. We noticed that the panelists they had lined up were not the most diverse, and this venue had hosted amazing inclusive events before, so we were a bit surprised, I suppose. All these Twitter people joined this conversation and were saying things like, oh, you don't know anything about the panellists, there are things about them that you don't understand, and so forth. And we were like, we're sure that's true, and these are amazing people, but we just want you to make more space at the table for other voices. Anyway, things escalated until someone said something like, well, if you're so inclined, why don't you host your own panel? And we were like, you know what, you're right. We have the perfect opportunity to host a panel with the right kind of voices that mainstream media seems to ignore, and so here we are today. Yes, and um, with us in the room, we have some amazing guests. Um, our first guest is Vicky Vancondios. Um, she is an educator, speaker, and advocate on family violence and homelessness, um, coming from a lived experience perspective. And we also have Sally Goldner, who will be joining us at some point, I believe, um, who is the Executive Director of Transgender Victoria, host of Out of the Pan, which is a 3CR program, a stand-up comedian and an all-round incredible woman. And we have Tanin Onis-Williams. Tanin Onis. We do apologise about that. Um, we're trying to get that fixed because our ears can take only so much pain. Um, up next, we have Tainin Ernest. Tainin is a Yiger, Kunjumara, Yorta Yorta, Bindal and Torres Strait Islander. Tainin is a black queer woman who lives on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people here in Nam. She has been a sexual health and consent educator, social worker. She's a writer and has organised rallies in Nam for the last three years including Stop the Forced Closures of Aboriginal Communities in Western Australia. 
Justice for Elijah and Invasion Day rallies. Tanin currently works at an NGO doing communications for an Aboriginal woman's political engagement program and is a feminist. We also have with us here Anastasia Lee, who, an unconventional woman whose existence and outlook uh, does not confine within any definition of a woman by society. Since her self-recognition, which was three years ago, she has been speaking up and looking uh, forward to side with not just trans people, women or marginalised minorities, but also the human side of humanity for equal rights. She's been volunteering with Out for Australia, Victorian AIDS Council, and recently just joined the Joy Melbourne 94.9 FM family. We can't wait to hear her thoughts on Me Too today. And we have Queenie Bonbon. Queenie Bonbon is a sex worker, activist and performance artist, and we can't wait to hear her thoughts on the Me Too sexual harassment and violence. And lastly, uh, a good friend of ours, Nick Ranger, a NUM-based musician and artist, uh, including of the wonderful Dada Ono, who routinely inspires, educates and moves people through her incredible music and ingenious videos. And uh, before we hear from these uh, amazing panellists, we will be um, listening to a song. And who is the song by? Uh, so it's, the song is called Natural Woman by one of our favourites, K8. Body So you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR, and we just heard from an artist called Kate, who Ayan Lauren and I actually saw on the weekend. Yeah. Great artist. That song was called Natural Woman. Um, and so if you're just tuning in, this is our special Me Too panel program here at Tuesday Brekkie. We're going to jump right in. The first question I want to ask our guests today is about just what your initial feelings and thoughts were when the Me Too movement first blew up. Could we start with Sally? Sure. Hi, hi, 3CR listeners. I'm Sally from Out of the Pan here. And when I fir- when it first blew up in October, and I was just looking, as you do it, my as I did, as one does at your Facebook feed, and the number of people in a row, me too, me too, me too. But I suppose I want to add from my point of view as someone in the queer community. Yes, acknowledging always that the majority of sexual harassment, intimate partner violence is perpetrated by that element of males on females in simple gender terms. But how much of it went further, you know, sort of regardless of gender. And also, just, we'll say, nice guys who copped it as well because they weren't macho blokes or blokey blokes, whatever. And that was my first response. And, yes, it was triggering as well. So there's, yeah. that's my first thoughts, yeah. Yeah. And you're right that there is that kind of like narrowing of what we consider, you know, perpetrators and survivors to be in these conversations when it does enter that mainstream. Yeah. Um, could I ask Queenie to hear your thoughts as well? Yeah, I think like the first thing I was reading when people, like, n- not so much on um, what was being said, but like on the responses to it, that everyone was like, I'm so surprised, I'm so surprised. And it was like, are you? Because we've been, sa- this is not the first time people have been saying this, but I think it's like this, the way when it was like, like, oh, you, you believe us now when it's in this 
sort of like certain setting or you're like you're like oh I'm so shocked to hear this and it was like where have you been like what have you like how have you not been exposed to this or how have you um purposely not been seeing this or um acknowledging like what's going on in your like with people in your lives in your community like in a wider space so I was just like like this is very performative of people being like I'm so shocked yeah absolutely um, and just um, when you brought up the word performative, um, so some people say that the Me Too movement has become very performative where everyone's just sharing their stories through social media and obviously not everyone's expected to do that and, you know, it can be argued that, um, you know, it be- becoming more performative might have diminished the value a little bit um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Maybe, Vicky? I, I personally myself think that a, a lot of people... Um, I don't know whether denial is the right word to mm. use, not not just with that, but with majority of the things within our society. And people don't really like the truth. The truth hurts. Mm. And the fact that this was a, a non-spoken of subject, you know, years ago, let's just say the 80s and 90s, um, I think it's a shock. And people aren't used to change. A lot of people don't like change. Mm. And I believe the fact that it is changing and coming out in the open now and so many people talking about it mm. um, is a bit of a shock to people so they don't know how to sort of you know take to that mm. I suppose. Mm. And sharing your thoughts on social media um, even sharing your story I guess um, what do you think about that? Is that a good thing, bad thing or um, perhaps one of you could expand on that? Hi, Anastasia um, well, social media can be a very powerful platform to bring people together but at the same time, by being public on social media, you are also expose yourself to certain risks mm. and maybe further harassment. And especially uh, the people who initiated the Me Too movement, they work in the big industries, you know. And um, that could actually be the cons for them, that they may get turned down by jobs. And there's always insiders, you know, mm. trying to, yeah. re- you know, constrict them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, what's <coughs> interesting is that uh, the, the backlash was um, the women who came out and shared their stories were accused of sort of relishing the moment or um, uh, sort of getting so, like traction, social traction from sharing their stories. And as you said, Anastasia, um, what people don't understand is the risk that they put themselves in. And also, they might not have shared these stories with their family yeah. or their friends. Sally, did you want yeah, to? Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. And I think that's the other thing that for too long people have had it bottled up because of fear to speak out, perhaps we'll say shame, however, I'd better, I'll say in inverted commas, irrational that is. And all of a sudden the fact that some powerful figure when Harvey Weinstein got finally knocked over was came out, it was like that opening the door and out, out it all came. Um, so yeah, there was a benefit in that. It did made, I suppose, it made people feel like they weren't alone at last. But agree that, of course, social media is the proverbial double-edged sword. Mm. And you know, I, I want to pay tribute actually, not just to the people who um, spoke out against Harvey Weinstein. I was thinking of people like Clementine Ford and Celeste Little and um, Yasmin who just cop so much rubbish just because they're not passive, submissive, quiet women, that sort of thing. All those sorts of people who speak up regularly, whether it's their own experience or otherwise, and we see it so often. Yeah, and uh, Nick, um, what what do you think about the sharing on social media? Is that something um, 
like where do you stand on that I guess yeah I think um, whenever you want to put oh hello my name's Nakarindra hi thank you for having me um, <laughs> I think when you put any opinion um, particularly one that is quite polarizing for people because as we've just said people a lot of people don't like to um, have a conflicting um, image portrayed um, about maybe what they might identify as so there's a, a real feeling of um, defense and I think that that's kind of something that you need to anticipate um, oh sorry can you hear me yeah yeah, awesome. yeah no you're Thank fine you. <laughs> Um, so I think whenever, uh, for me personally, I, I write uh, content that I put out into social media, um, I'm just very aware of that and a, a, a little bit anticipating um, of that potential backlash, but I think everybody has a right to their opinion, um, whether it be um, Barnaby Joyce saying, yes, <laughs> everybody has a right to be bigoted as much as I disagree with some of the other things that he said. I do agree with that. And I do agree that, um, but also to, this has given a platform to people to be able to have their voices being heard, probably for the first time. And so this is an extremely emotional thing. And I think just sensitivity around this issue um, when approaching someone who's trying to be forthcoming about something that was probably a very particularly painful experience in their life. Um, I... I have also written um, a social media status about this because I have some, had a few instances in my career, um, both in music and both in um, uh, engineering um, and also <laughs> in marketing, where I've had, where I've had problems. And I think um, from that very wide array of industries, you can't necessarily say, oh, it's only this thing, but it's not us. Mm. It's... A, it's a conglomerate issue. Yes. And I think that's why the Me Too campaign has been such a, um, a widely discussed topic all around the globe because it does open up this opportunity to be able to discuss a bit more. And w going back to our first question as well, um, linking it to our first question, when the Me Too movement, when you first came across it, did you engage with it or, or what was your... Um, because for me, when I saw it, I saw my Facebook was divided by people who were supportive and those who thought, you know, oh, it's, it's such a tab taboo subject, keep it behind closed door, don't um, air your dirty laundry. So what was, what was the response did you see when the movement first took off? Well, hey, Anastasia. So when I first saw the Me Too movement um, popped up on, on social media outlets, I was like, oh, finally the media gives it the attention it needs. It's been going on for decades, you know. But at the same time, you still have to remember that this world is run, is run by money and they choose what they want you to know. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing. And the internet, even though it can reach as far as the, at the poles on the earth, but at the same time, people can be selective with what they want to read and what they want to know about. And at the same time, with the social media, I was quite furious that um, another notorious actress, Rose McGowan, who mm. claims herself to be um, a feminist, to be publicly a transphobe. And mm. that hurts. Big, and, you know, and, and that's another thing. Like, 
voices like hers can actually invoke that sort of, the sense of hate mm. toward, towards women of diversity. And so we need to be, and then at the same time, eventually, it grew, it grew bigger than just like uh, spreading the message and raising awareness. It's mm. more about me, my pain. But then we should remember that it's everybody's pain. Because when you're, when you're harassed, your family, your loved ones, mm. they feel it too, and they should know about it before the public, you know. Mm. I've lost my family through my transition. And I, I, I wish I could have somebody to share my pain with. Mm. And I just don't have that opportunity. So mm. let's use the f- like so- social media to focus on the, the common pain and the struggles that we share with rather than name-shaming and, you know, um, pointing fingers out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's <coughs> a very good point that the media amplifies certain women's experiences more than, um, you know, other, other women. And um, I'd like to hear what you think about... Um, if you're comfortable, about your own experiences and how you think this movement has sort of, um, I guess, um, helped you think about it and what you think the media should be doing more? Um, Hi, Vicky. (laughs) Um, I actually think, for myself, like like I said before, you know, nothing was spoken of in the 80s and 90s and, you know, harassment, even... For myself, when I started working, you know, in the CBD at 16, catching transport, you know, it was very hard to be able to walk through those streets with, without getting harassed. Mm-hmm. Um, big-breasted woman, so, you know, un- it was very unfair to be, like, having comments yelled out to me at that, such a young age that I didn't think anything of it. And I actually didn't even tell my parents or speak to anyone about it because I just thought it was normal and it was okay because it was men. Um, it was a normal thing for men to do. And basically, you know, through the years, as the years went on, and I'd received certain comments, you know, from certain workplaces and everything, again, of, of course, I would stick up for myself, but never really took it serious enough to talk to somebody about it. So, you know, for myself, throughout my life, I've had a lot of um, sexual harassment comments come towards my way. And I think it's very important now that it's actually getting spoken about and for women to not actually self-blame. Um, because, you know, I'd like to wear my skirts and shorts and things like that as well. And even with having a daughter as well, I just... There's times where she'll wear something and my first reaction will be about how men are going to look at her, the type of men Mm. that actually throw out sexual harassments or look at women in in such a way. Um, So I think it's really great that Mm. it's actually been spoken of and put Mm. out there. Yeah, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Anya, Lauren, George, and some amazing panelists. Um, we're looking, we're listening to Vicky, um, Sally Goldner, Tanin Ernest, Anastasia, Queenie Bonbon, and Nick Ranger. And speaking of Tanis Ernest, um, you just came in now, and so you perhaps missed out on the first two questions. And that was not, no shade, by the way. <laughs> um, but we were just, um, we asked the guests about their experiences with social media, especially around the initial, um, so when the movement first was gaining traction. And we wanted to know what are your thoughts about, A, the creation of the movement um, via social media, and also how have you engaged with the Me Too movement? Um, for me, I th- when I first saw it, I think it was like kind of after I'd spoken about my experience publicly. So 
at first I didn't really engage with it that much. Um, but I think that, you know, at first I just, it was mostly like cis white women that were participating in the conversation. And I just, for me, I really didn't participate because I just felt excluded from it straight away. And I know that I, and although I had spoken about my experience before, um, like through the Her Words um, um, online series, I just felt like, yeah, I just felt excluded from that. And I felt like, for me, as like an Aboriginal woman, that it just, I don't know, it didn't fit with, like, for, I just didn't feel comfortable enough participating in the conversation either. So now, like, reflecting on it, yeah, I just really didn't. Um, but I think that, you know... I think it just comes back to the the fact that it was just like co-opted pretty much by white women and their experiences and like all like you know they can go to the police and the police will believe them and for me that with my experience was not the case and I think that you know I think that if I saw more black women participating in the conversation about the Me Too movement then I probably would have Mm. and I think one of the biggest things would be that you know, like if, like I know that in my community sometimes it can be people in your community, so you can't actually speak up about it because you run the risk of creating, um, you know, a division in a sense. Mm. Even though it's not your fault, it's actually the abuse that creates a division, but you feel like it's your fault because people in your, it's a person in your community. So, you know, Aboriginal women were silenced because the people in their community they probably have their Facebook friends with and it's probably one of their, there might be one of their family members so I think that it was really difficult and you know I know that like a lot of Aboriginal women have experienced sexual violence before but are forced into silence because it's people that they know. Mm. And cause as a Somali um, b- b- before we um get to Sally, I just want to say a few words. So as a Somali, um, we're a small community and when a young woman or when a woman is um, assaulted, a lot of the times they won't call the person out publicly because they think, oh, this is going to look bad on the community and that's going to add to the, um, I guess, the the idea of the aggressive black man. Um, So it's not just... So for them... It's not as easy to share their stories. So it's not so much that they don't want to participate sometimes, but they're thinking about all the complexes involved. Um, is that something that you um, thought about? Yeah, 100%. Like, that happens, you know, I think that's definitely what happens all the time. Like, we see people all the time in community and, like, everybody knows but nobody says anything. Mm. Even though they might be in positions of power, nobody says anything. So I think... You know, we are forced into silence and, I don't know, like, I guess for white women it's different. Like, you don't run the risk of, you know, kind of ruining your community because of it. So, um, yeah, and, like, in the comfort and the, you know, all the things that come in with your community that you're trying to protect and also, yeah, trying to protect the, the black man black man in mm. the community. So I think, yeah, it's a really, it's a really difficult place for Aboriginal women to be in. And I think Sally wanted to say... Yeah, um, I immediately tapped into your feeling of perhaps not feeling like you were part of it as a queer woman because 
Um, you know, and I've spoken publicly now about my experience of what I believe is sexual harassment <coughs> by a prominent queer female advocate. And there's parallels here, difficult as this topic is to mention, of um, intimate partner violence in queer communities. First of all, oh, the queer community wouldn't talk about it because if we did, oh, see, you people are just as bad as everyone else. We're not going to give you your rights. There was that fear. Now our problem is trying to get mainstream to believe that it's not just males on females. And so I felt that disconnect as well that I wasn't included. And I do feel a sense of frustration that, you know, sort of the diversity of experiences and people have been left behind. And I want to quote um, trans woman from America, Sarah McBride. This quote just seems to fit too well. Um, Each time we ask anyone whether they are transgender, black, an immigrant, Muslim, Native American, gay or a woman to sit by and let an extended conversation take place about whether they deserve to be respected and affirmed in who they are. We're asking people to watch their own life pass by without dignity or fairness. That is too much to ask of anyone, end quote. And I think that fits in here. It's like, oh, we'll get the white middle class women on the map first and then we'll do you later. No, <laughs> We've, we, we can't do that anymore. Intersectionality is critical and we've all got to be you know, represented equally and find you know, ways to make sure that all of our issues are included and represented and addressed and change happens really quickly. And you know, the other point earlier it was mentioned, I, was, I have to admit to being somewhat surprised a little by the extent of it. We were sort of knew it was there, but when it, you know, it was sort of, as I mentioned, everyone in their, you know, in their Facebook thread, it seemed, was saying it. That did take me aback at first, and then it's like, well, yes, it's not surprising because we have such a, a misuse of power that is promoted as okay in our society, and that's regardless of gender as well. So, yeah, I think we're not including people enough. There's good work being done, but it's got to get to being inclusive very, very quickly. That's so true, Sally, that idea that a movement always kind of follows that trajectory where it's just like the mainstream, like people in power whose voices are heard and then little by little other people get included. But that can't be the only way that movements kind of Mm. take off. Mm. Yeah. And this question, I guess, goes to Queenie. Um, What do you think about ideas about the respectable respectable voices or the voices that are, I guess, um, more believed than others? Yeah, I think if we look at like the the voices that were like imme- immediately amplified and the celebrities who were really taking up that space, um, those women were also women who have really heavily advocated um, against decriminalisation of sex work, mm-hmm. and so in in one space they are like you know we all um, talking about like you know like we need to be able to be safe in our in our workplaces, and then it, in the same breath being like. Like, not you, we want to further create, um, like, systemic violence against you and acknowledge that the violence you experience um, should be amplified by um, law enforcement and police, which, who are, which are already impact um, the safety in our lives so, so much already. So I think there was just this broad spectrum thing of, like, yes, we're saying this, but, like, not, no, not actually, not you, all of you, but, like, you guys stop making a fuss, we know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. And with all that um, up against, I guess, us in terms of race, class, stable housing and employment, physical characteristics and so on, um, what structures do you think we need to dismantle or perhaps have a conversation about for the Me Too movement to be, um, I guess, a 
a successful movement? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I I think there are, there's so many things around, like th- like the criminalization of of drug use, of sex work. You know, these are all things that that deeply impact communities who are experiencing violence. And also this idea that um, the intimate partner violence that we experience is often also amplified with people knowing that um, we are vulnerable because of the um, legal status of our our work. And so, like, the violence is amplified. So I think even having it as, like... um, not having it so much as just like a personalized thing, have being able to see it like as as like wider systems, but also understanding that they they also deeply affect like the interpersonal relationships that we have and the violence that that we're that we're really susceptible to. Mm. I guess same question goes for any of you who are interested in in perhaps telling us also about the types of, types of structures that you feel like perhaps get in the way of you know, the movement being effective in terms of police or in terms of, um, like, institutions? Are there certain institutions that you think need interrogating? I always feel like there's a massive divide between the people having a conversation. (coughs) Sorry. Um, Nick Ranger here. Um, I always feel like there's a massive divide between the people having a conversation and... um, Policymakers and mm-hmm. people who are um, who aren't just trying to line their pockets before they um, get hopefully re-elected um, in a four-year cycle, but people that are genuinely trying to um, advocate for change and who are in, um, I guess, positions of power. I've I've been a person that has um, been um, maybe on two levels of, I guess, maybe three levels of um, the way that change is implemented um, from a grassroots level, like handing out flyers and annoying people on the streets and trying to, like, say, like, hey, like, this is really important and can I please have five minutes? Um, usually the answer is no. Um, all the way to um, organising events, maybe more for um, organising um, people of different um, b- backgrounds and um, intersectionality to be able to come together and speak um, and give them platforms to be able to be heard and to take that um, and create surveys and then um, forward those to the policymakers. I always find that that's always what we've been told to do because I'm very interested as to how we take um, all these pieces of data and turn that into um, something that is actionable. I don't see enough of a recourse for how much work, how much emotional work there has to go in to be able to collect these pieces of data to be able to implement change. I think that um, it's very true that there is a disillusionment um, for a lot of people, and I'm not just saying for myself who I would identify as still a young person, being 28 years old, um, that we're not being heard. what none of none of us have been heard um i i've also just want to take this time to um congratulate 3CO um and to the radio organizers for putting together um this conversation and bringing a lot of different members from the community who um have very very different um backgrounds and 
occupations to mind to be able to have a conversation around this like these are the kinds of conversations that policymakers should be hearing and really really thinking about when they are creating this legislation how it's going to be inclusive for everyone and I don't feel like there is enough of that and I feel like um, I'm, I'm very interested to see more um, people coming together maybe to to bridge the gap because I know that there's a lot of um, with what I just said with the disillusionment I also know that that is also the very same reason that a lot of people feel uncomfortable or feel disempowered um, and feel like it's not even like worth sending um, their local MP a letter or giving them a phone call I'd like to also add that I I really think it's important to actually basically make it mandatory uh, with the education department. Um, I I think this is very important to be put out in schools. Um, Our our children are our future leaders, and if we're not going to involve the children and let them know what Mm. is right and what's not right from now, um, it's pretty scary. Yeah. Sally, I'd go with that. I, I think that the, you know this, the respect programs that are starting to be implemented are a good step and will take time. Um, the two areas that I think we have to look at, um, we touched on one: commercial media. You know, its mm. first concern is rating points and clickbait in a lot of cases. Mm. And without rah rahing or sounding all schmoozy, yay to three CRs are clearing any interest <laughs> because this is you know look at all the grassroots people who are in here. But I'll come back to more, I seem to be you know, talking about the queer community a lot. The queer community is sadly a, at times a mirror of broader society and we hear terms, you know, gay triarchy, rich old white gay men. Well, that sort of structure needs to be dismantled. And again, the, the disconnect between the grassroots and some of the more powerful institutions within the rainbow communities. It was good to see at the Better Together conference in January when the G, the gay caucus, reported back at the end that they were talking about misogynism. What do we do about it? So that was quite awesome. But it's, I have to be honest, and as someone who deals with the, top e- the self-proclaimed top end of the rainbow communities, there's still way too much misogynism, transphobia, biphobia generally, and that can well translate into lack of safety, sexual harassment, etc. So you know, there, I, it seems there's a thread, the, the discord between the grassroots and of the relative powers that be. So that's you know, how we get that connection going is, I suppose, one for ongoing debate. And I feel like, um, for just to address the commercial media point that you made, I feel like um, when you say commercial media, you're sort of talking about S- SBS, ABC, Channel 10, Channel 7. Is that what you mean? Um, well, no, more the... Murdoch and Fairfax papers and the commercial stations. I didn't want to name names, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's call let's call spades let's call spades shovels here. Come on, yeah, 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 absolutely. What are they going to do? You yeah. know, and maybe that's maybe that's yeah. And I can understand why yeah. people are hesitant. But we've got to call this. And I mean, you know, generally ABC and um, you know, sort of SBS are better. And then let's be fair. Also, you've got commercial media that even if they're not as big like Guardian and Crikey, mm-hmm. those sorts of things, who are mm-hmm. doing good progressive media, yeah. but but it's still too few and far between. And so ha- try to, trying to get those, la- I'll call them large reach commercial yeah. media on side, how do we bridge that divide as well is the, is the question. Yeah, Yeah, I also feel like, um, sorry, I don't mean to take over the conversation mm-hmm. here, but um, I, I work as a digital marketer 
um, and I've, I'm, I would, I'm a, I like, I troll on data, and that's what I like to do. I'm a bit of a nerd <laughs> in my day to day. Um, but 80% of all of, our, of the media pieces that you see are owned by um, Rupert Murdoch mm. Fairfax. Mm. Mm. So everything from everything from radio all the way to to the free newspapers that you just get off the str- on the street. Um, when you think about 80% of everything that you see on a day-to-day basis, unless you subscribe to Awesome 3CR, um, <laughs> uh, you're, you're seeing a very filtered view of society. Mm-hmm. That is huge. And I think that's why the Me Too campaign has been so um, prolific, because it's had social media um, to be able to amplify that. And I think there's a huge trend um, shifting towards that kind of platform. And I think um, as difficult as it is to maybe, like, put forward your stories and your your conversations into the pool and make it very personal, as hard as that is, I do see that as um, another addition to a conversation that really needs to be had. Mm -hmm. So thank you to um, everyone that has put forward their personal pieces and to everyone here who has um, been very personal about their, their experiences. And I guess for Anastasia and um, Tanin, um, you both touched on uh, the issue of family and community support in A Believing Survivors and also um, encouraging people to speak out. Um, how do we engage the community or how do we... Um, encourage the community to get behind us to help us amplify our voices I guess it's a very interesting question and uh, I'm Anastasia here so I'm just going to relate that to the point Vicky made earlier about education I came from Vietnam and it's such a I hate to say this but it's a it's a confusing misogynistic place Um, it's okay like lesbians and transgender from female to male they are still well respected but those who are gays or transitioning from male to female we are degraded and I think we should teach the children at a young age like there's you know like it, it doesn't matter which which traditional gender role you're streaming, mm. you're a human being, That's right. and everybody is capable of doing the same thing. There's no shame for anybody to put on makeup, there's no shame on painting your nails, or there's no shame for a boy to be interested in, say, couture and sewing and, you know, dresses. And it's okay for girls to be tomboy. Mm. And, and, and at the same time, we have to realize like, what exactly is sexual harassment. Because Let's face it, we do have double standards in our lives. And, like, you know, say, uh, earlier last week, I actually had drinks with my friends. And funny enough, I witnessed this uh, this incident where um, (laughs) my friend was approached by a good-looking guy. And he he was flirting. And it was okay for him. But then as as an older man approaching her, she's like, oh, he's a creep. Just keep him out of my face. And how is it? Okay, like how 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 is that different between the older guy and the, the younger guy? You know, and and um, because I, I lived my ignorant gay life before, and I was sexually harassed as well, mm. but I didn't know, and nobody took me seriously because I was male. I had the privilege of the male. Mm. 
Mm. But sexual harassment is still sexual harassment. Yes. And Sally was right about you know, being um, inclusive towards like, you know, all gender, not just you know, female identifying members of mm. society. Yeah. And uh, Tanin Ernest, would you like to? Um, I think that, like, I know for, like, family and community to get behind, it's, I don't know, I think for me, speaking about my experience publicly, like, I had so many Aboriginal women come out and, I th- and, like, even just, like, some of Aboriginal men in the community were, were just, like, saying, oh, you know, we're so proud of you, blah, 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 which is really nice and it was comforting. And I think that, you know, people were actually learning mm. what consent really means. And, you know, it was, like, you know, and there was a person in the community as well, so I felt, feel like they had someone to relate it back to. Um, and, yeah, and I think... Then I had, like, Aboriginal women as well, like, messaging me, like, when violence would happen to them. So I think that one thing for me was that we were, like, they were learning about what consent actually means and able to talk to somebody about it. And I think that's what it comes, to, like, down to as well is, like, representation mm. because we need representation um, in our communities so that we have someone, you know, Who's, like, who's there and who, you know, like, who's experienced something similar or whatever. Um, so I think that's one big thing as well. Like, that's how, I guess, in my community. Mm. And also, like, I was, you know, te- I was a sexual health educator and was teaching young people about consent. So, yeah, I think that was what I've kind of been mm. doing. And I think that's really important as well, like, in body sovereignty and, you know, asking my niece and nephews if I... if I can give them a hug or a high five. It's really important to me mm. to actually, for them to make a choice whether they want to give me a hug or a high five. And most of the time they want a high five and that's fine. But some people are like, yeah. you know, that's weird. It's your niece and nephew. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. Their bodies need to be respected, yeah. even if they are children. And they really appreciate it too. So mm-hmm. I just, yeah. I've never thought about that because uh, I, when I see my little cousins, first thing I do is just grab them and um, get up in their face and hug them and everything. <laughs> but, but I guess the whole consent thing is um, starting good practice, healthy practices, yeah. because you you just never know who, you know, like people's intentions. So um, I guess creating a starting place where, you know, it's perhaps perhaps they can in the future take that on and and so on um so next up we have a song by the amazing sampa sampa the great and the song um is called protect your queen the magical Sampa the Great with Protect Your Queen. You're back listening to... 
I'm not very good with technology. You're back listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR for our Me Too special panel. And now we are going to hear a, an interview I did last week with Sally Schmerling, who is a senior solicitor at Refugee Legal. Um, part of the idea of the Me Too panel was to focus... Um, on voices that the mainstream media had excluded. And one of those particular communities that are excluded by virtue of structural inequality and structural barriers are a lot of refugee and asylum seeker women. So usually it's 3CR and particularly this show's preference to have people talk about their lived experiences um, on a personal level, but for reasons that you're about to hear, that's not always possible. Um, And it also excludes a lot of women from the Me Too movement. So you'll hear from Sally now. My name's Sally Schmerling. I'm a senior solicitor at Refugee Legal. I've been here for, I think, six years, maybe six and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little while now. And um, so we're talking today about clients particularly who have issues of family and domestic violence, gender-based violence and sexual assault. Um, are these clients a significant part of your workload? They are, actually, um, and increasingly so. Um, me personally, with my own file load, it probably comprises about 60 to 70% of my clients. Um, throughout the organisation, though, um, I had a quick review of our files and I can sort of estimate that we're probably currently representing, uh, providing ongoing representation to around 200 women. Um, yeah, uh, in situations of that kind, that's mm. not including the number of children that they have. Um, it's also not including the amount of just one-off advice we provide over the phone or at our night service to women in that situation. Right. And yeah, we get probably around 30 new inquiries every month from women experiencing family violence. So it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, this is a very specific kind of situation because these women aren't here permanently, most of them. So how does someone's visa status then impact on their ability to report or move forward with allegations of these kinds of assaults? There are some really, really serious barriers mm-hmm. to reporting um, of, you know, for our clients. Um, but I think it's also important just to start with the proposition that all women experience barriers of some kind. So for our clients, there's just additional barriers for them. Um, the main one that I hear from women is that, you know, I didn't get help sooner, I didn't contact the police because of threats from the perpetrator. Of, you know, I'm going to cancel your visa, I'm going to kick you out of the country, you don't know your rights without me, um, you don't have a case without me so it's that it's that kind of a threat um or threats that you know if you contact the police um i will hurt your family i'll have your family back home hurt yeah so that kind of stuff um and then also um just a a mistrust or lack of lack of awareness about the authorities here in Australia. Um, So women may have just had really bad experiences in their Mm -hmm. home country with contacting the police. They may even have been assaulted by the police in their home country. Um, I have just countless heard countless women say to me why would I why would I contact the police they would they, they would be the last you know the, you know, the last mm-hmm. ones that I would trust to, to help me so they're really the main ones and then of course language barriers or not having access to the phone so those sorts yeah. of practical issues um, but yeah the biggest ones are just around just around fear mm-hmm. the consequences of it um, and actually, it's just so common if I'm, you know, meeting with a client for the first time and I'm taking instructions about how they were able to get out of that situation and I say, so what finally happened to make you call the police? And they say, oh, no, I never called the police. A neighbour heard us fighting and they called the police. So it's always so that external... Yeah. yeah. 
On top of all of that, I understand that being here on specific types of visas, you may actually be relying on like a partnership staying together. For example, if you're here on a student or a working visa, if the partnership that you're in breaks up, you may lose the visa. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, a student visa is a really good example. So um, I've got a lot of clients who their husband might be the primary visa holder. So the husband, so they're the ones that have got the student visa. Um, and then my client has joined that visa application purely because uh, they're a dependent. Um, they're in that spousal relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's correct. If they do separate from their partner, um, then their visa, well, they're no longer eligible for that visa. So it's liable for cancellation. So it's really important that anyone in that situation um, gets urgent advice because they might have some other visa avenue that they can pursue to remain in Australia. Um, Women who hold partner visas, so temporary visas that are granted to them on the basis of a relationship with an Australian permanent resident. Um, For them, there might still be a permanent partner visa pathway if they've experienced family violence and they've left the relationship. but unfortunately, they often don't know that, and they're usually the, the women who end up saying to me, yes, I didn't contact the police because, you know, my husband was threatening to deport me mm. or to, you know, have me thrown out of the country or, um, if, if I did that. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and there are other sort of visas of category, uh, sorry, other uh, visa categories where there used to be a pathway to permanent residency if you separated from the primary visa holder because of family violence, um, but the rules have changed, so that's no longer available. So um, they're with some uh, skilled visas as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so for women on temporary visas, it's um, the barriers to leaving violent relationships are really significant. Yeah, um, and. I'm not sure how many of your clients fall into this category, but what about for women in detention? Um, So they are by far the most vulnerable, Mm -hmm. um, and often because perpetrators of violence are in detention as well. Um, and it's it's really uh, it's a really concerning situation um, because you know the nature of detention is such that we often just don't know what goes on in there. Um, and all I can suggest um, is for any women in that situation, they just need to get urgent legal advice. Um, we can you know provide them confidential advice over the phone or in person. Um, they're able to be accessed, um, so we can you know assist them whatever way we can. But Obviously, for women in detention, the threat of deportation is so much more present than it would be for somebody in the community. Um, So there's that additional fear for seeking any assistance in that context. Um, Yeah, I've got a real concern around Mm. the safety of women in detention. Yeah. Um, And so obviously the show that we're producing, that I'm interviewing you for, is about the Me Too movement and Mm. how it's kind of ignoring so many people's voices. I guess there are a lot of optimistic people who hope that (laughs) the prevalence of the hashtag and the movement will give a voice to those people who have previously been voiceless. Mm. Do you think that that is the case with the women Mm. that you work with or do you think that these barriers are just too significant? It's a case-by-case situation and there's certainly something that can be very healing and empowering about um, speaking out Mm. and and telling personal stories. Um, But I think it's just really critical for women in these kinds of situations to get legal advice um, if they're wanting to do that because it can impact their their immigration case. Um, So, yeah, I would Mm. encourage anyone in that situation, that's what they're wanting to do, to to do that first. 
Yeah. And so how can women contact you if they're listening and they're in that situation? So they can contact our telephone advice line, which operates twice a week on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, you know, we're happy to take referrals at any time from people in the community as well. So particularly for women uh, who are in urgent situations and need, need advice ASAP, um, they can contact us at any time. Tuesday Breakfast. That was Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with the song Black Woman. And before that, you heard our interview with Sally Schmerling, Senior Solicitor at Refugee Legal, talking about the Me Too movement in relation to refugee and asylum seeker women. So we're going to get back into our discussion now. We started off speaking a little bit generally just about the movement, how it sort of kicked off and um, just our general thoughts. Now we want to sort of hear about uh, our panellists' expert knowledge and experiences. Um, Vicky, can we start with you? You have a, a lived experience of um, homelessness, and I'm just wondering, do you think the Me Too movement is relevant for people experiencing homelessness and family violence? Definitely, yes. Um, so I'm actually part of a, a delivery session um, with Connect Respect, and we deliver um, to business owners in the city of Melbourne and basically raising awareness and educating people out there on how to better respond to homelessness and people that are experiencing homelessness and the fact that a lot of these business owners um, walk past people that are homeless all the time. And I was actually thinking that really would be a very great idea to sort of incorporate the Me Too movement together with these training sessions and, of course, you know, there'd, there'd be funding that would be needed to be raised for that as well in order to be able to let people know that you know, people are very vulnerable once you're home. When you're homeless, you're basically walking around, you know, with a label and there's a lot of people out there that sometimes, you know, end up with, um, with drug use due to, you know, wanting to block out what is going on because there's such a high demand, you know, on services and lack of housing. You know, you're sort of just sitting there waiting, you know, every minute waiting to see if you're going to get housing. And, you know, if you don't have mental health issues, you know what, you, you start to develop those mental health issues and... Rape does happen. Rape does happen to um, a lot of people that are experiencing homelessness. And I think it's uh, very important to be able to raise that and let people know what's going on rather than just um, basically labelling people and just saying, oh, they're homeless, you know, they're just druggies or, you know, who are drunks and, you know, they wanted to be there. No, you know, it's, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. There's so much that comes with it. Mm. And you're so right, and this is kind of what's been touched on throughout this program is this this need to kind of jump from the discussion of the movement to actual change and policy. Yeah. And in the case of, of housing, we know that there are actual ways mm. that these things can be addressed. Yeah. And how do we get to that step? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's very, very important for people to, you know, if they're not in the knowing people within our communities, because it happens in every community, there's homelessness everywhere, and it does affect us all as a whole. It really does, and even crime rates are, are also raising as well. Um, people are just sort of um, seem to be pinpointing, 
you know, certain things, but not looking at everything as a whole and what causes, you know, the, the high crime rates, what causes the sexual harassment, the rape and, you know, all that stereotype, um, it needs to be broken. And unless we work in unity and people start reading up on everything as a whole and get educated, I don't feel very confident that there's going to be much change because mm. uh, then we can all sort of advocate towards the government as well and stand as one to make that change. Mm. And what do you think about the way homeless people have access to services um, do you think there's, um, it's getting better or what do we need to do about that? Um, the fact that like the rental market and houses it, it has really gone above that bar. Like, I mean, you, get, you even get your average family who you've got your working, you know, um, two parents or, you know, couples. And they're struggling as well because of all the prices that are increasing. So really, homelessness is actually um, getting worse. Mm. And, and the demand is very high. And the government does cut funding, mm. um, which is very unfortunate. So I uh, know I wouldn't say it's getting better. There, mm. there is positivity there. There is change. It does happen. But like I said, we need to work all together as, as a whole. Mm. And um, I, I'd like to discuss um, now. Look at narratives and constructions and so, and so on. Um, this question is for Tani and Onus. Um, how do um, I guess sexualized ideas about black womanhood put us at risk of sexual violence? Um, I think that I think that for, like for me, I feel like um, I, cause I grew up in like country Victoria. And it was all, like, you know, and I think that, you know, there's always this idea that black women are more promiscuous than white women. And it does put us at risk because our consent doesn't mean as much as white women's consent. And so our no doesn't mean as much as a white woman's no. So I feel like for us, it's like, you know, when we are sexualized and when we don't, and when we, we say that we don't want to participate, it actually is, it's, I feel like it's, we, they think that we should be so grateful that they're interested in us mm. as black women. And I think that, you know, like that, and that actually plays into our consent not mattering compared to white women's consent. And, like, even, you know, in even other commu- like in communities up in Northern Territory and stuff, like lots of women and, like, even at um, services and stuff down here, if you... They try and force Aboriginal, like young Aboriginal women, to get the implant on things like that because they just assume promiscuity. Mm. And I think that it really does play into a lot of like sexual harassment and um, abuse, all that, like you know, all that sort of stuff. So I feel like our race definitely has a huge part to play in um, sexual harassment mm. and abuse. And I think that. Yeah, it does come back to the same thing of like us not being believed, and yeah. and you, like, s- a huge part. you also said in your video, um, in her story, that Terra Nullis is rape, or your friend used uh, that term, which is yeah, incredible. Yeah, my friend, she's like an indigenous woman from um, Canada, and she, yeah, she said Terra Nullis is rape culture, mm. and I when I heard that, I was just like, holy shit, like that is like hits nail on the head because. You know, at the end of the day, we live on stolen land, and as long as our, you know, literally the rape of our land is happening with mining companies, Adani, all those sorts of things. So I think that when we 
we actually need... That is actually really, like, not consensual. And the colonisation of our land is obviously not consensual. So I think that it just... Everything stems from that as well, from colonisation, because that, you know, like, British occupation is not consensual. So... And that also plays into why... I, I feel like it might be it might, might be why Aboriginal women experience as much so much of violence as well um, across the board because of that reason. And um, before we go to the other guests, why do you think it's important to centre black women's voices when discussing um, the Me Too movement or any other movement, I guess, where we look at the oppression of women? I feel like because there's like so much diversity amongst black women as well. Like, I, th- I just feel like there's just diversity across the board anyway. So I feel like our experiences, and especially, like, for Aboriginal women, I think our voices need to be centred, mm. like, all the time because because of that reason, because of colonisation and, mm. you know, consent in terms of land theft. So, yeah, I feel like there's so many... Vo- and, but, yeah, there is diversity in voices as well amongst yeah. black women, so I feel like it is really important. Definitely. And when you think about a black woman being uh, disproportionately represented in, in, in prison, in family violence, and tying that back to colonisation and, uh, I guess, the colonisation project, I, I always found it that's important to tackle that first. And, um, yeah, so because we're I'm very mindful of the time. Um, I've got a question for Queenie, actually. Um, we had a bit of a ch- uh, chat about respectability politics in the Me Too movement earlier. So how do you think the Me Too movement could be a better tool in assisting sex workers? I think um, that just to like look at it also that we're like like not a monolith, that we're like this very, very like di- diverse community. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in in the same way there are like different voices really get prioritized and i think often the most marginalized members of our community actually like are often involved in or or street-based workers who are not even on social media and so being aware that like those voices are actually really left out of these conversations um, I think it's just this real acknowledgement that even though it can be like very powerful to name um, individual abusers, that um, while there are actually just like wider systems that um, are criminalising us and imprisoning us, that actually those are the structural changes that need to happen for it to be a movement that that works for the wider community. Mm. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, uh, Lauren, Anya and George. We have a Me Too, um, guess Me Too special panel. Um, and now we're going on to Anastasia. Uh, do you think that the Me Too movement could be useful for decreasing risks of harassment and violence against trans women? Um, yes and no. Because first of all, again, the Me Too movement have appeared quite exclusive, you know, to certain members of the society. And, and in fact, there are feminists who don't see trans women as women. And there are um, underreported cases of non-female identifying members that just went under the radar and nobody acknowledged it. So um, the, the thing is, we should be aware that every voice 
can contribute something, and everybody and every story should be heard and deserve to be heard, really. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so yes and no. So unless we actually acknowledge that sexual harassment is sexual harassment, it mm. doesn't discriminate anybody. Like yeah. it, 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 is, it doesn't matter whether you see me as a woman or a man in, in the dress, I still face the same thing, and I still carry the same scars. Mm. So you know, and we should acknowledge the pain rather than the label the yeah. person carry on, because mm. the society lets you know, let lets itself divided by social um, status and um, profession and yeah. gender identity and your layers of identity, mm. identity, and we just forgot the common root. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And Sally, what kinds of conversations <coughs> have you been having and hearing about the Me Too movement in the trans and broader LGBTQIA plus community? I think that um, I'm glad actually used LGBTIQA because <coughs> following from Anastasia's comments, we need to break down in terms of trans and bi. The, um, re- what research we have shows um, bi women at greater risk of sexual assault than say lesbian and heterosexual and probably possible, I say possibly, comes back to the same sort of patriarchy where there's those men who think, oh, two, oh bi, bi men's two women for me, that sort of horrible stuff. Mm. And so I think that's, you know, we need that diversity of voices, but it also comes down to facing the issues within the rainbow communities of inequality and making sure that people who claim to be allies, you know, who think they're allies are really doing the right thing, that can be an issue. Um, the other thing that a couple a couple of points that I think that often this sort of behaviour can one common thread is just plain misuse of power, and then, as Anastasia rightfully said, it can happen regardless of the gender or other aspects of the perpetrator and the victim. And I think there's another angle that can come in, which is aspects of neurodiversity. I suppose needs to get touched on that people who are on the autism spectrum might end up being more vulnerable. For example despite the fact that I don't shut up talking on radio, I'm an introvert and sometimes my quietness, my think, 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 then I talk, say, in a meeting, is seen as a sense of passivity and people can overpower on that. Mm. So we need to look at a, you know, just get back to basics, equality, respect, dignity for everyone. And I know it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but zero tolerance for violence, stigma, discrimination. And I think if we put that foundation underneath, we can then perhaps bring everyone together um, and it's going to take work but I think listening to some of the comments earlier, we do have alternatives we've got social media, it can work and let's use it our way um, put it in our hands so to speak and do that is one approach but I just have to say personally I feel more affirmed myself for just having this conversation, as I said I feel like I'm not going to be believed that a woman would sexually harass another another woman sort of thing mm. And I feel like hearing all these stories, difficult as they are for people, that people are feeling silenced and not heard, it's in in an inverse sort of way. It's that sort of strength that can bring us together. So, you know, maybe we've just got to keep, you know, what is it? How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Mm-hmm. Maybe we've just got to keep chewing. And I think momentum and talking and, but also then, you know, really pressuring for, for change that is inclusive and making sure everyone's included, that would be my summary. Mm. I just feel so enlightened every time you speak, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Nick, I've got a question for you. Um, you've obviously worked in a number of industries, and how have you seen sexual harassment play out in those industries, so including the music industry and the tech world? 
Yeah, I think it's always, um, as I was saying, like uh, an abuse of power. Um, when there is real power, when there's perceived power, and when there's um, perceived passivity, there is always going to be um, opportunists who are going to try and do something about that um, for their own potential gain, whether it <coughs> be to, I guess, embolden themselves or to essentially just marginalise someone else. Um, it, it exists, and it sucks. Um, how I have personally dealt with it is, um, to qu quote Jinx Monsoon from RuPaul's Drag Race, <coughs> uh, what if a doc's back? Um, but it is really, really frustrating, as I see it um, happen constantly time and time again. Um, it has had to make me a tougher person. Um, it has been very, very challenging to um, be both the person that is, um, I guess, like an understudy to someone else or to be um, the boss of a team and to see members of your team um, have other people that you've worked with harass them and then you are now in the decision-making um, position and there have been times um, where someone who has worked for me has come forward and said, this just happened, I don't know how to deal with it, I'm in a state of shock because I didn't expect this to happen. And <clears throat> I've listened to them and I've realised, oh, I now am in the position of power where I can make a choice about how we as a team are going to move forward. And I've said to them that, um, well, you know, you are a part of my team and we won't work with that person again. And that's also meant that there are opportunities that won't be afforded potentially because they, like this other band, has um, power and has um, an audience that we would like to communicate to. But at the same time, I think it's really important... Um, to arm yourself with the pillars that Sally mentioned earlier, which is go back to basics and really assess in yourself <clears throat> what kind of world do I want to live in, um, to quote Gandhi, you, um, to be the change. Oh, no, wait. No, it's escaped me. Anyway, <laughs> if you want change, you have to be the change and you have to be the mm. person that is going to yeah. um, stand up for other people for if um, I see any one of my friends who identify as trans be marginalized anywhere, whether, whether it's um, if I see it on the street or whether I see it on social media, I always hope that I am um, very vigilant with that because I think it's really, really important that just because it's not involving you personally, um, those who see evil but do nothing about it are... Um, basically endorsing it mm. yeah. and um, although it's I recognize that it's extremely hard because we're inundated with so much negativity that it's um, really difficult to maintain one's mental health I think for the betterment of society and for our communities at large we owe it to ourselves and to each other to do more 
And I think this really gets to the heart of the, the last question that we want to throw to, to all of you in terms of bridging these communities and different groups of people. How important is it to have a collective movement against sexual assault, if at all, in your opinion, uh, that ties these different groups together? Um, well, basically, I, I'm a very big believer to say if we all put a cut in our arms right now, you would see red from every single one of us. And if we look at it in a way like that, well, then I don't think it should be very hard for everybody to come together and start mm. having a little bit of empathy, you know, and compassion. And, and mm. let's, let's start making a change towards, you know, a, a positive society rather than such a negative, ugly, bullying society. I think I'll leave it at that. Mm. Um, if I just want to um, add also, we are trading in attention. Uh, as I mentioned before... <clears throat> A lot of the success of the Me Too campaign has been through social media, and it's all in trading of, of attention. So as people are writing their stories and literally making the hashtag Me Too, as much as people say, oh, you're just trying to, um, I don't know, embolden yourself and, and make yourself feel like you're a part of something and like basically try and downgrade what you have to say, um, that in itself is... Um, it, 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 it basically pushes up the importance of these kinds of topics. And that's why this Me Too campaign has been um, really successful in being able to be very, very far-reaching and to include a lot of different people in the conversation. It's 2018. Social media is very real. Trading of intention is extremely real. Be a part of it. Mm. Mm. Or you could sit with the trolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're everywhere. And yeah. they always will be. But be a troll with heart. <laughs> yeah. Change. Queenie, did you want to weigh in on this? Um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I feel like in the sexual community, it's, su it's such a diverse community. Like, there's actually, you know, I, and I think there's so many other communities as, as well, that it isn't just, you know, w there needs to be the prioritization of so many marginalized voices for this to be able to have real movement. And it's like those voices being amplified over... Um, like the celebrities who, um, you know, at the start were really um, weighing in a lot and it's just like those voices don't need to be prioritised and those mm. voices don't need to be taking up space and um, their accessibility to, um, like, their, their accessibility to so many other different um, systems that are not against them is, isn't, is so different that actually it doesn't, like, it doesn't make sense for this movement to move forward with them being the, the front line. Yeah, and uh, just to follow from that, I think that celebrities can play a role and their role is to say, yeah, this isn't on, and here's someone at the grassroots who's <laughs> had this experience. <laughs> they they can, you know, they have that um, sense of power and privilege, and privilege in itself isn't a problem. Of course, it's how it's used, misused, and not used, and that sort of thing. But if they use it, you know, with strength, that's where we can tag in. But often, of course, you know, there is an element of publicity for themselves in what they're doing. But uh, to go back to the last question, of, you know, it's got to be inclusive. We can't leave anyone behind. And I often say about diversity, um, you know, as people, we're all trying for roughly the same things, to live our lives safely, achieve our potential, maybe make a dollar at the end of the day and have a drink at the end of the week, that <laughs> sort of thing. We're just all taking different paths to get there. All those paths are valid. 
And in that sense, it's got to be inclusive. I like what you said, Vicky, about we've all got red, you know, red blood. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, It's the same thing. So we're all people, and in that sense, we're all equal. And we've got to you know, not just be equal, but there's also that classic meme about equality vis-a-vis equity. We've got to bring people who are you know, um, up so we can all sort of see the game, so to speak. And then there's the, the third frame to that meme where they added the one without the boards but had a, a fence everyone could see through. Um, so we've got to get rid of the barriers too. So I think that it's got to be involve everyone. It's got to be broad-ranging. Let's keep rolling with it. And I guess this is, yeah, it's um, going forward, it's, I guess it's a, that idea that we sort of coming together to have these sorts of shared conversations whilst also recognising difference and being able to maintain both the two at the same time. Can I just quickly add in um, for all uh, those who are experiencing domestic violence mm-hmm. um, and especially being married as well, that it is not okay to, you know, to be forced to have sex um, and just because you are married, it doesn't mean that you belong to that person. They're allowed to use you whichever way they want, especially raping you, and say no. And there are services and supports out there for you to break that cycle and get away from that. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have um, contact details that we will be sharing for um, all these services for um, folks to um, contact and get the support that they need. Thank you so much, everybody, for sh- you know taking the time Thanks out of your us. morning, <laughs> sharing your thank wisdom. You. We do appreciate you coming on board. So thank you so much. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the end of Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Anya, George, and the amazing Lauren, who's been paneling the heck out of the show, um, who normally has a lot to say but <laughs> today I guess decided to give up her seat um, so we do appreciate you Gab and MV um, yeah and have a lovely morning you too